Chapter number one of the Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Rivera. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter one. Mrs. Witcherly was not quite old. She seemed always to be keeping one foot on the tail of her youth. The poor thing squeaked, but could not quite break away. In her conversation, she would often drag you, all tremulous, with her into the confessional, where you found, to your disappointment, that she had no sins, only errors of diet. She was by way of being a woman of the world, with the world left out. Its place in her Erciston Square Salon was taken by the world's understudies. Henry Burnage, who for years had made her salon a habit, would torture himself at times with the thought that he was only a fashionable man's understudy. But the torture did not persist, for his opinion of himself was high and on the whole stable. Of the understudies, there were many. Her rooms were full on Sunday evening. Mr. Witcherly would be seen there sometimes. He sat in corners and was mildly disapproving. He made the money, and Mrs. Witcherly spent it. Still, he acknowledged that his daughter Angela must have every chance, and the salon was in some sense a chance. More often, Mr. Witcherly did not show himself. He liked to take a walk on Sunday evenings, and he frequently took it. He had a dislike, not wholly irrational, to the salon. Reason was a strong point with him. Be rational, Jessica, he would frequently say to his wife. I only ask you to be rational. When he went his walk, she alluded to his headache. Nobody minded. He was not the attraction, neither was she, and they both knew it. But Angela wore pink, and understudies attract one another. Angela petted her papa a good deal, and, in return, he never mentioned anything in which he was seriously and commercially interested. In public, she would sometimes talk to him with endearing facetiousness. This mildly puzzled him. He only dealt in the milder sensations because in private she rarely talked too brightly to him. Mrs. Witcherly's drawing room was not in itself wonderful. The walls were covered with a paper that had a dado to it. She had ordered it some years ago herself, and she regretted it. She knew now that it had been premature, and that a paper with a dado did not constitute art's last word with regard to wall decoration. Mr. Witcherly did not think the times were yet ripe for it to be superseded. He had said so more than once. Mrs. Witcherly rather believed in what she called those pretty trifles that make a room look bright. So she concocted some flower holders out of Japanese fans and some velvet that had been on the dress that she had worn when Maria was married. These things afterwards were transferred to a spare and prematurely unoccupied bedroom. It was thought that Angela had been responsible for their removal. Angela considered that the room was irredeemable and thought that cheap attempts at redemption humiliated her. It was late one evening. Mrs. Witcherly's guests had all gone. She had interviewed the hired man in the hall, paid him, swung back into the room again with a declaration that Jameson was invaluable, and now sat down in her rocking chair, facing her daughter, fanning herself rather vehemently with a fan that had been mended. Oh yes, Angela, you may say what you like, but there's never any need to tell Jameson anything. Why he goes on the job instead of taking a permanent place is more than I can imagine. He's just the picture of the perfect butler. All right, Mama, all right, said Angela, rather irritably. He does, but you needn't think that he deceives anybody. I don't wish that he should, dear. Far from it. The Queen herself may know that he's hired for the evening for all that I care. When one is entertaining a great number of people, one supplements one's staff. The very best people have to do it. 
Yes, drawled Angela, but they have a staff to supplement. Ah, if we were only quite poor. Angela, that is really wicked. If you dislike our means, our moderate means, you would dislike poverty still more. We do our best, and it's too ungrateful of you. Mind, I don't say that I am not fond of a little society myself. Oh, Mama dear, don't be intolerable. I don't know what you mean, but I do know that it's chiefly for your sake that your father consents to these Sunday evenings. And you know that it's the dream of our lives to see you happily married, like Maria. Poverty would be to you life's greatest curse. Mr. Burnage told me tonight that he thought families whose income just touched the four figures really had the hardest fight against vulgarity. But he added, from conjecture and a subsequent politeness, that all things were possible to genius. We have the fatal income without the genius, I fancy. Ah, Mr. Burnage is one of those rather clever young men. I don't understand him, but he looks very well in a room. Angela, my dear, I must hunt myself up a little supper. I hadn't any. I dare not eat when I'm feeling nervous. It only means that I wake with a fluttering in my side and feel as if the angel of death had summoned me. I'll just go into the dining room and see what I can rescue. She returned in a minute with a champagne bottle, still loyal to the third of its contents, and a plate and a small tumbler. On the plate was a cold cutlet in aspis and a silver fork. On the portion of the plate which still remained untenanted were two chocolate eclairs. She was careful to keep the aspis clear of the eclairs until their turn came. She ate rather greedily. Angela looked geniusly distressed. Honesty is a poor word for Jameson, Mrs. Witcherly remarked as she filled her glass. Any other man would have finished the bottle. You can trust him. That's what I feel so much about Jameson. As a tonic for the stomach, I believe that there's nothing. Oh, mama, mama, said Angela suddenly. Why did we keep on fighting? I used to love our parties once, but I'm getting to know things. We're ridiculous. We aren't quite what we want to be, and we are the more absurd because in some things we're very near it. I don't think I want to marry. I used to, but I don't now. I certainly don't want to marry any of the underbred young men who come to this house and fall in love with me. I often wonder why I go on trying to be bright and amusing to them, and why I do my best to cover up the rough places and make things go smoothly and cajole Papa and dress as well as I can. The hell, the awful hell of this London life. And poor Angela buried her head in a recently purchased cushion and began to sob a little. You distressed me, said Mrs. Witcherly excitedly. I can't bear to see you like this, Angela. I insist that you shall not sob. I cannot digest when my mind is disturbed. Poor Angela, do be comforted. Angela sat up and dried her eyes in silence. Her brief storm had passed. You're feeling low, Mrs. Witcherly continued decisively. Now be guided by me and take something. There are some of these eclairs still left. You may just as well have one. You know what things with cream in them are like on the second day, and chocolate sustaining. Now do, and that, she said, suddenly breaking off as she heard a sound at the front door, is your father's latchkey. Don't let him come in and find you like this. By the time that Mr. Witcherly had entered, Angela had composed herself. Mr. Witcherly was short and bald, with a slight tendency towards rotundity. I have had such a walk he said with enthusiastic satisfaction as he took a distinctly comfortable chair. I went as far as Putney by an omnibus, just as I said I would. Then I struck across the common. Wonderful place. Round by the mill, 
thinking about Richmond, you know. And then off to the left in Wimbledon. Changed my mind, you see. From Wimbledon, I took train to Waterloo and walked to the club. I found Bodgers there, and we split a bottle of old port. Bodgers would pay. I hope you've all enjoyed yourself as much as I have. It's been a most successful evening, said Mrs. Witcherly. Do you like the new champagne, Jessica? On the whole, I think it's an improvement. Six pence a bottle cheaper. That's what it is. Be reasonable, Jessica, and don't pretend to know anything about anything. There, kiss me and good night. Angela, it's time you were off to bed. His lips smacked on her forehead. Hers brushed his cheek. Six pence a bottle cheaper, he murmured to himself again and went off in a wild approach to hilarity. Mrs. Witcherly turned once more to her daughter. She was feeling quite optimistic. I noticed, Angela, that you talk a good deal to Henry Burnage. Do I? I'm glad you mentioned it, Mama. I won't do it in the future. As a rule, I talk to anyone who isn't talking to anyone else. I haven't a word to say against your manner. It isn't the old-school stately manner exactly. Angela leant forward, her elbows resting on her knees, her pretty face. She was not nearly as pretty as she looked, framed by her warm little hands. At this point, she interrupted her mother. Dear Mama, I'm a flirt. When you can't be what you want to be, it's kind of baby's consolation to be the thing you hate the most. But you must not deceive yourself. It occasionally seems to me that Henry Burnage is less foolish and rather better bred than the average here. But don't imagine that I love him, and he's not in the least in love with me. Well, he's been here off and on for years. He must be a good deal taken by us. I don't say that, as a rule. I would recommend a girl to marry a young commencing barrister. No, no. I'm not so unwise as that. But Mr. Burnage has means, independent means. As I ask you to look at the way his rooms are furnished. You may call them what you like, but I call them gorgeous. And then he entertains. Not so frequently as we do, nor on so large a scale. But so infinitely better, said Angela fervently. There, you're defending him. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that I tolerate him, and it does not mean that I love him. I know what you want, and it couldn't be done. Why, if he kissed me, or if I thought even that he wanted to kiss me, I should go quite mad, mad with disgust. Oh, Angela, darling, said Mrs. Witcherly. You know that I wouldn't force you into anything. There, good night. We must not sit up any longer, or what will your father say? You'll come directly, won't you? At the drawing-room door, she paused a moment and looked almost beseechingly at her daughter. Angela, she said, I believe that I've had one eclair too many. End of chapter one.